So today's episode of The Lore You Know is sponsored by Visit Braxton County, West Virginia. You can check them out at the link in the description. Let me tell you a story. Imagine you're a child playing outside of your local elementary school. It is the evening of September 12th, 1952. And all is well when suddenly you see a bright flash of light streak across the sky and crash into the hillside of what you know to be Fisher's Farm. You run home to tell your parents about what you just saw. They assure you it was nothing and scoot you along to bed. But the next morning, you hear that a monster appeared right in your hometown. It was spotted by some of your classmates, actually. And neighbors went to investigate the scene and saw horrible creature. This monster soon becomes known as the Flatwoods Monster. Those who saw it in person have lasting effects from the strangeness they witnessed that night. But today, in 2021, what is there to do in Braxton County, West Virginia? Well, for one, you can go to the famous Flatwoods Monster Museum in Sutton, West Virginia for free. The museum includes Flatwoods Monster collections and historic items related to that famous night on September of 1952. You can find books, art, memorabilia, and souvenirs such as, hold on, this amazing lantern, which definitely, I, I don't know why you would visit and not get this, as well as many other items, there's stickers, there's shirts. The Flatwoods Monster Museum also doubles as the Braxton County Visitor Center. So when you're in the area, you can grab some brochures and info of things to see while you are there that may be of interest to you. And when you get there, please tell Andrew that I said hello. Welcome to The Lord You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists, as we discuss the history of, inspiration behind, and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. I am your host, Heather Mosier, and I am joined today, thankfully, by local celebrity filmmaker, Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters. Yeah, disclaimer, though. She, <laughs> she said the amazing people thing. I did not ask to be on the show. But local celebrity, you agree with that? Yeah, that part. I, um, that yeah. part's legit. National, international celebrity. I said local, though. Okay, never mind. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so I'm glad that you were willing to step into this side of the office mm -hmm. and sit with me yes. for a little while. I know you didn't ask to. I kind of made you. It's okay. Are you sure? Yeah, I'll allow it. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. That's good. So your version of storytelling is a little bit different mm -hmm. than most people's um, when we think of storytelling, I guess, in a general sense. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I wanted to ask you, when were you introduced to storytelling in a general sense? Like storytelling through family? Was there someone in your family, friends group, whatever, that was kind of known as a storyteller? So my parents owned a bookstore. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was, would be from there, uh, because they, I grew up around authors and, um, writers and musicians, like a lot mm -hmm. of musicians were connected to my family. And so storytelling and history went hand in hand in my family. And so I don't think I was ever consciously aware though, that, right. that that's what it was, mm -hmm. but it would have been through the authors and people that my parents palled around with. And then we spent a lot of time with those people, even as kids, like, um, I mean, all sorts of like major history, like people who today are considered like 
top dog like his, historians were people that we knew as children and so i think it was probably from there and then also um we were raised on movies right like whether or not my parents would admit that today uh <laughs> We spent uh, astronomical amounts of time in hotel rooms as children because mm-hmm. we did book shows every weekend. And so we spent hours watching movies. And so I think it was that. And then also just books, like reading books all the time. We were voracious readers as children. Yeah. Like most of that comes from the fact that we were spending eight to ten hours in a car on weekends. Mm-hmm. We would just read as yeah. kids. So yeah, there's well, the long answer. What was one of your favorite books? That you read as a child. My Side of the Mountain was a book that I was obsessed with as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that's a book about a little boy who runs away from home and then lives in a hollow tree. Oh. And the book is like Fight Club for Children. <laughs> and really okay. is. It like teaches kids how to like survive on their own mm. without adult supervision. Um, down to like explaining how to stay warm and like <laughs> all these things that are very... Uh, today I don't think it would fly, but... Uh, that was like a book I was obsessed with as a kid. And then the other one uh, is Benicula, which is a book about a vampire rabbit who drinks the juice from vegetables. And I adore that book. That is a, that is adorable yeah, sounding. It's, it's great. <laughs> of the people that you got to interact with author-wise um, on the book circuit there, are there any that come to your mind when you think of storytellers that were fun to sit and listen to? There's two uh, two that stand in my area that come to mind. One is Alan Nolan, who um, fairly well-known Civil War historian. Um, I don't think he's with us anymore, but um, him and his wife. His wife was a, a school teacher or a history professor. I can't remember, but she would like hang out with me on the bus because neither of us were super into the Civil War. So like when we'd go on these tours and stuff, her and I would end up alone on the bus just kind of hanging out. Um, so I spent a lot of time with her and her husband. And those are two two people that really come to mind. The other is a historical musician named Bobby Horton. Mm. And Bobby has done music for uh, a lot of the Ken Burns documentaries. Still does like a lot of the music for the Ken Burns docs. And uh, he, I think more than anybody else build a career out of like singing old fashioned music. And mm-hmm. it was just really cool to like, he played all the, all his own instruments too. So he could play like hammer dulcimer and all that kind of stuff. And it was crazy to banjo. That was my introduction to banjo was through him. That's and, like, cool. Harmonica. And, like, he would sing old like songs that the soldiers were playing and stuff like that. When you guys were going on that tour, was there a specific like circuit, an actual circuit that you were used to going to the same places? No, no. Every, we grew up touring battlefields around the country mostly obviously in the south i mean like Mm -hmm. virginia and south is Mm -hmm. where georgia uh spent a lot of time in the carolinas and places like that as a kid hearing all the different stories throughout time like when you said you were younger probably didn't appreciate it so much Mm -hmm. at what point in your life did you recognize that this was an important thing to hear these stories and have them be recorded those stories, the Civil War stuff? Well, the any, yeah. Yeah, no, I never had any appreciation for that until Small Town Monsters. Mm. So I probably gained some form of appreciation for jotting down people's accounts of just various life experiences while I was writing for the newspaper, mm. um, which was just prior to starting Small Town Monsters. But until I started Small Town Monsters, um, I had never thought 
thought of the importance of documenting like regional monster stories and especially like Minerva is the one that cemented that because the Minerva case was being Minerva monster was huge in, in 78 and even into the mid eighties, like 85, they were the Canton repository was still doing stories on it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it wasn't until, uh, we came along and started asking questions of people in the town about the Minerva monster that most of the people in that town had even heard of that story, which was mind blowing to me. And then it was like, okay, so there actually is like, if we don't do this, this story could literally disappear. Right. And um, so we started, I think that was when I really gained an appreciation for that aspect of, of what we do. And, mm-hmm. and I guess even just capturing, capturing tales that other people don't put any significance or importance in. What about family stories that from your family, personal oh, stories? God, yeah. I mean, so my dad was in Vietnam. So growing up, I mean, we had all those mm-hmm. and he would tell those pretty fre- frequently. Um, but my dad, so my dad's family is from the deep woods of North Carolina, yeah, like Cherokee area. So like mm-hmm. real, real backwoods, legit hill folk in yeah. a good way, not in a bad way. <laughs> Uh, but there's pictures of my dad like on the front porch of his grandma's house wearing a burlap sack for pants. Yeah. That's held up with like a rope. So okay. like my dad's when he would go visit that side of the family, he lived like you mm-hmm. know, like 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 they live. And um I can remember lots of those stories as a kid. Stories about like my grandma Schrock uh growing up. She was Jewish, so there was a lot of stories about that and just yeah, I mean, th- throughout my family, that was a big part of growing up is hearing about your ancestors and how people lived in the old days and things like that. How did those stories come? Up? I mean, were they just in regular conversation? Yeah, but yeah. It, I mean, it, and it comes from my grandma Schrock was a big storyteller, but my grandpa Schrock wasn't unless you could get him talking. And yeah. Grandpa Schrock was the one with like the crazy stories because he grew up Amish. Mm-hmm. and left the Amish faith when he was like 18 or something and was in jail for stealing chickens and that's how he avoided the World War II draft and like all these like Wait, crazy... was that planned? To steal no, chickens to avoid? No, oh. it just happened. It just happened? Yeah. Um, all sorts of like <laughs> wild stories would come out of him, um, but he didn't like to tell them. So How would you get him to talk? You would just talk to him and eventually he would get going. You would keep, you had to keep prodding him to tell those stories. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing about that is like, I remember my grandma had bought me a tape recorder and wanted me to talk to him about those stories because she wanted me to, to write a book about his life. Yeah. And we would try to like hide the tape recorder behind like a picture frame and then we get him talking <laughs> and we could never get him to really open up as much as I wanted to. And I don't know where those tapes are now, but yeah, I mean, it's all, it would, it would just be like holidays. You're sitting around and mm-hmm. everyone, everyone would share stories. So he never caught on to the tape recorder behind the, Oh, he caught on. Did he? That's, <laughs> That's probably talking. why he wasn't yeah, opening he up. He didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned a little bit about, or you kind of alluded to the idea of writing a book at some point. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know, you guys should know, Seth makes films. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have plans or aspirations to do another type of medium of relaying stories other than film? Well, I mean, podcasting is kind of that, and we've done that for a while. Books? So it's weird. I was a writer before I was a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and I wrote 
scripts when I was a kid. My brother and I were writing magazines when we were like six and mm-hmm. selling them to people. And like we we were so I was writing long before I was filmmaking. Wait, magazines about what? Yeah, <laughs> we just goofy kid stuff. Like okay. we write stories in these magazines and then sell them to our family. <laughs> um, I would, I would like to go. I would like to at one point, at one time, maybe do a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that connects back to STM, and I we we're already publishing books, but you know maybe at some point I'll write something. But I don't like writing. Mm. Like, it's something I can do, and it's something I'm. I can be capable of. Right. Um, but it is, it's become very, very difficult for me since I quit the newspaper for some reason. And I have a really hard time getting out of my own head when I'm writing now. Mm-hmm. And so writing is not what it once was for me. It used to be like a great escape. And now filmmaking is my, my creative escape, I guess. So it's possible at some point I might write a book, but I doubt it. Oh, yeah. you should. You got lots of stories to tell. I do, but I don't think I'm. I I just don't think I'm good at at writing anymore. What if we pretended it was a newspaper article? Like if if you write it in well, that that's form, worse. that's worse. That's even worse. Yeah. It's just a thing you can't you can't bring yourself to do so much yeah, anymore. Yeah, it's very difficult. We'll figure out a way. I write a lot with the movies. You do. I mean, like so. So we got to put it in script form. I, you, someone's got to trick me into thinking that I'm writing a movie. We're hiding the recorder behind. Yeah. A photo frame. Yeah. But not letting you know. Right. We'll be sneaky. And I'm writing a, I think I'm writing a movie. Yes. It is perfect. Done. Great idea. We've got it figured out. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) So what made you transition from writing for the newspaper to actually going to filmmaking in general? Like what was that? There was no, there was no point where I ever saw making Minerva Monster as making a movie. Okay. So we... I was writing for the newspapers all the way up until we were into filming Minerva when I wrote my last article. Mm. So we um, we started. Well, the let me dovetail that with Bigfoot stuff because what happened is I became interested in Bigfoot as a topic because there were these stories where I grew up about um, Bigfoot. Creatures being seen on these back roads outside of the town that I grew up in, which was a very small town in rural Ohio. Mm-hmm. And um, when I started hearing these stories, I thought that sounded absurd because I grew up in the woods in the, the, behind my parents' house. We grew up, the house that my parents raised us in. They were there. For, they lived there for 47 years. Mm-hmm. There's a huge tree line with forest and then there's a field and then there's nothing but forest all the way to Salt Fort. Yeah. So I grew up playing in the woods all day. Never experienced anything as a kid that I would consider unusual. We were often in the woods from sunup to sundown. So when I started hearing these stories about creatures being seen in the woods, I thought it was silly. And then uh, one day I was introduced to a a friend of my family who um, owned a ranch outside of Bolivar. Mm -hmm. And these people claimed that they not only were seeing Bigfoot on a semi-frequent basis, but that they were so familiar with seeing them that they could follow them on horseback. Oh. And. That's cool. From anyone else, it would have been unbelievably absurd, except these people were people that we knew very well who who were extremely um, 
well placed in society right in in the town where we were um there was uh one one of the one of the family was a district attorney mm. and it was so insane to me that I started driving around on those roads at night, at like day night. I, I would, um, you know, I, I worked in Bolivar, so I would on my lunch break I go drive around the roads because mm-hmm. I was so fascinated by the fact that they were saying they were back there, and I thought maybe I would just bump into one while driving around. <laughs> right. So I drive around those roads, and that was like what really got me into the topic. I started talking to people along the road that I would see walking down the road or whatever. And, and most of them were just locals who were out walking and they would tell me these stories about animals, uh, deer and livestock that they had found ripped in half Mm -hmm. and stuffed up in trees, Mm -hmm. uh, which was very unusual for that part of Ohio. And so that's what got me into it. And then because of that, I started remembering or hearing about, um, Minerva monster. And so as a kid, the Minerva monster was the only Bigfoot story I had ever been aware of. And that was just because Minerva is fairly close to Bolivar. Yeah. And people would say, if you go out in the, the woods after dark, the, mineral, or the, the Minerva monster will get you. There was also a mineral city monster that they called Mini. Mm. But that was a little later. I was like 18 maybe when I heard about Mini. Mm-hmm. Um, Mini lived in an old abandoned train tunnel, supposedly. But it was Ooh. a Bigfoot, sto- Bigfoot story as well. Yeah. Um, so... Minerva monster had been in my head at least since I was a kid. So that was the one I was aware of. So when I started getting into Bigfoot stuff, that story became the one that I thought we should try to do something with this other than just like write a book about it. Because at that point I had already submitted a book proposal for a book called small town monsters to numerous publishers and they'd all rejected it. And Minerva, I was the story that one of the stories, the cases that I really wanted to cover in that book. And so even when I was putting that book proposal together, I had already started calling members of the Caton family. Mm -hmm. I'd already spoken to James Shannon, who was the sheriff. And I talked to Barbara Galloway, who was the writer for the Akron Beacon Journal. We'd had these talks about the Bigfoot that was seen around Minerva. And um, we started filming in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, And and it was just like this fun little side project we were going to do for YouTube. Uh, we thought 20, 25 minute short film that we would post on YouTube and that would be it. Um, because of the fact that I was writing for newspapers, mm-hmm. I started talking about the fact that we were making this movie with some friends at the newspapers and they wanted to do stories on it. Mm-hmm. And then as those stories started coming out, more people wanted to do stories about it. Mm-hmm. And because that was happening, I started sending press releases and then more and more people started covering the story. The first article about our movie ran like eight months before the movie was out. Wow. And then it just started snowballing. More and more people talk, were talking about Minerva Monster. I never <clears throat> connected what we did with being filmmaking mm-hmm. until the day of the premiere. Uh, the premiere in Minerva. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was 1,200 people there. And wow. I went, I, I walked... Someone told me you got to go see the line down the street. And I said, okay, I was in the theater. So I walked out the back entrance of the theater and I walked around the block. And it, as I was coming down a side alley, I saw people stretching down the main street. And I thought, well, that's weird because we're, we're like a block from the entrance. Yeah. And I came out and they were still going like another block. It looked like Star Wars was about to premiere or something. And that's that awesome. that day was the day where I was like, oh, we just made a movie. And like people actually want to see it. Yeah. So it's still 
Like it's still it's storytelling. It's just mm-hmm. a different type of storytelling from what I was used to as a kid. Yeah. I had friends when I was a kid who told me I was good at telling stories. I think filmmaking has like dulled my ability to tell stories verbally or in written form. Mm. I don't know why that is. I don't know. Well, I mean, not really though. If you're writing a script and stuff, <clears throat> I mean, you're still engaging. Yeah, but it's, it's just not as it's, much detail. It's playing off of the, the visual side of it. Right. That's true. Well, okay, so you mentioned this book and that Minerva Monster was in it. Have you been following those stories for each movie? Like, is that what we've been doing? No, um, we did for a little while. The book was, I think, four or five cases. I would have to, somewhere the pr- proposal still exists. It was it was sent out in 2013 mm-hmm. to six to eight publishers. Yeah. Um, and there was maybe like six, four to six cases in it. Minerva was one. Falk Monster was one. Okay. White Hall was one. Yeah. First three. Yeah. Done. Uh, Mothman was in there. Four. <clears throat> um, Big Head was in there. Okay. I was trying to really focus on Ohio stuff. And those yeah. are the five that I remember for sure as being part mm. of. Momo might have been in there. Really? Momo was one I loved even, maybe even before Minerva, mm. before I really became aware of Minerva. I really liked the Momo story. And Momo and Minerva are really similar like mm-hmm. very similar stories they got the hill behind the house they've got a yeah. rural family mm-hmm. yeah um but those so for the yeah for the first bunch of movies we were just kind of like working our way through the book proposal um but mothman was daunting because it took us away from bigfoot yeah and into an area that i don't know i would say that I'm racking my brain, but the Mothman of Point Pleasant might have been the first documentary about a like a uh, paranormal or cryptid topic mm-hmm. that genuinely took it serious that wasn't Bigfoot. Right. Uh, I'm racking my brain for another one, mm. but I, I don't know that I thought about it at the time, but when the Mothman of Point Pleasant came out, it was huge. Yeah. It was like it exploded and people were watching it. You know, it, they still talk about it. It still pops up on those like creepiest documentary mm-hmm. lists. We just were on one recently for like BuzzFeed or someone mentioned oh, that's it. Cool. And I think at the time it was like the one that came out that was really about <clears throat> like one of those rural monster case or any kind of monster case where mm-hmm. it took it seriously. Yeah. But well, based on the way that that was received then, did that, did that intimidate you to go off of Bigfoot topics to continue down that path? Or did it like inspire you to maybe stray beyond Bigfoot into yeah. other cryptids? Oh, no. I was really happy to get away from Bigfoot at that point. Mm-hmm. Because On the Trail of allows us to to do all sorts of stories about about these topics. We right. can We can, like within the journey, there's an entire chapter that's like a little small town monsters movie buried in that mm-hmm. bigger story. So On the Trail of allows us to play with those topics in all sorts of different ways. The films at that point with no recreations, very straightforward storytelling. We had done Minerva, Whitehall and Boggy Creek. Yeah. And I felt like there's we've hit the wall. I'm done. Like (laughs) I just can't keep doing this. So Mothman opened it up and then we did Invasion, which had a little bit of Bigfoot stuff involved. But it was years until we got back to another Bigfoot 
standard mm-hmm. legend movie. It was Momo, I think. Yeah. Was the first. So there like was 2019. Like, yeah, yeah. There was a long break between making um, Bigfoot STM legend movies. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was excited to, to tell other types of stories. And there's and there, those, you know, some of my favorite cryptid cases have nothing to do with Bigfoot. Yeah. Like the Flatwoods Monster and the Dover Demon and like mm-hmm. all these that's the stuff that I really love and that's yeah. what got me into the larger cryptosphere. Right. That's what I was going to ask you. Why monsters whenever you decided to go into recording these little known stories? What what was it about monsters that got your attention? Uh, It was, I mean, I really was drawn in by Lyle's book, mm-hmm. uh, The Beast of Hoggy Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was... I was fascinated by the fact that uh, the story he was telling wasn't just about a scary Bigfoot in a, in a rural area. It was about the community and how the community responded to it and how it impacted the community and those kind of things. And that was what made me want to have my own take on that. Cause I always saw it as that's not that different from what I was doing from the newspaper like for the newspaper, I had my own column called Slice of Life, which was like it was about independent businesses in small towns mm-hmm. and how those independent business people ran their business and how they kept it afloat during you know very tumultuous times for independent businesses and mm-hmm. how it affects their lives and the livelihood and all that kind of stuff. And I always kind of saw what we did with SDM, especially in the early days, as being very similar to that. Mm-hmm. And so I brought that same approach to it. STM yeah. when we started. Um, but you can, you can have these really great monster stories mm-hmm. um, and make the movies. And I think we've proven this over time, but you can make a movie that's creepy and does all the things that, that we respond to our romantic love of monsters. Right. So you yeah. can you can scare people and do all that kind of stuff. And you can also do something that says something about who we are as people and how this stuff can impact us uh, psychologically, how it can impact the fabric of a community, all those kind of things. And you can still do all of that in the context of a film mm-hmm. without it being boring or stodgy. If And if you watch our films, you'll see us figure that out. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a, work in progress still is a work in progress today. But if you watch Minerva, mm-hmm. Minerva spends a little too long on the history of Minerva. Yeah. Like maybe not for some of us, some of us right. do respond to that, but for the audience that's there to watch a movie about a Bigfoot, right. 20 minutes on French gold and <laughs> train systems and the Lincoln highway yeah. is a little too much. So when we made, Beast of Whitehall, it's six minutes on Whitehall's history. And then you're into the, and we mixed some of the paranormal aspects of the Adirondacks into that history. So it feels less like a disconnected opening chapter. And so over time, we kind of like figured that out or have figured that out to some extent. Yeah. But you don't want to get away. The big thing is not getting away from what is supposed to separate small town monsters from mountain monsters, which is the, rural communities and how they're impacted by those legends. How do you get people from rural communities to open up to you in general when it comes to these kind of stories? Like, I mean, I could ask you. 
No, well, but this question. Yeah, you could, but I'm asking you. You'll answer it the same way I do, which is, that, <laughs> uh, I mean, you talk to them like they're people. Not, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. not not like they're. Uh, I th- from from my interaction with television people, yeah. I know that when they contact witnesses or even talking head like experts, mm-hmm. they kind of view those people as an asset and mm-hmm. nothing more. It's yeah. like an ad. This is an asset to the film. We'll give you this amount of money. Yeah. Just t- say what we want you to say and shut up. Yeah. And so that's not how we've ever approached human beings yeah. that we're interviewing. Uh, we talk to them and I think we get to know them well mm-hmm. and we want to know their version of events, not like whatever version of events that we want to portray on screen. We want them to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of, of pregame yeah. leading up to the interview or even asking for an interview mm-hmm. uh, where you're getting to know them and talk to them and hopefully connecting with them as a person. And then, um, and then you can get into some of the ins and outs of those stories. I mean, mm-hmm. when we made Minerva, uh, like I said, I had already talked to three or four of the people that were involved in that movie. Um, and then there was an interview that I had conducted with, uh, one of the Caton daughters that um, not an interview, I guess it was more just like a casual phone conversation. Yeah. But she, she would never do an interview on camera mm-hmm. and, and audio she refused. Um, but we had had this long talk and I got her version of events. Yeah. And that was really helpful when we were making the movie. Cause I had an informed um, version of the Minerva monster story that didn't, it didn't necessarily jive with anything anyone else was saying. And, and so it always kind of informed the way we were making the movie. Yeah. Um, the frustrating thing about that is it was just a conversation I had with her. And, right. and so, so her version of events is not recorded. It's not recorded. Officially. And she's as far as I know, I think she passed away. Mm. And so her version of the story is gone. Yeah. And so we get a lot of like flack for, it's bizarre to me anytime we get flack for making movies and like profiting off of the stories of like witnesses mm-hmm. because I mean, you've got television billion dollar television networks that are doing just that yeah, and making no effort at all to record the actual story mm-hmm. from witnesses. But, um, yeah, there's an important step to getting those stories down. Not not every story, not every story is created equal, <laughs> yeah. but like, because some of these people have told those stories so many times, it's already recorded a dozen other places. Right. Even some of the films we've made, we've interviewed people who have already been interviewed, mm-hmm. but I don't think you can downplay a lot of the, the accounts we've recorded in our films. I don't think you can downplay the importance of that film on you know, being a part of capturing that, that little piece of history. When you're starting, it, I was thinking about when you were talking about going down the roads in Bolivar and just asking people mm. questions. Have you ever done that for for any of the filming? Where I know that if it's far away, you don't really have time allotted to just drive down the road and, and stop and ask people. But have you had a chance for anything a little local to just ask local, legitimately walk up to locals and ask them about a particular no. story? 
No, uh, the only exception to that would be the Boggy Creek Monster. I know we we spent so much time in the Monster Mart while we were making Boggy Creek Monster that it just naturally came up. Mm-hmm. People would be like, "Oh, you guys are the film crew," and then they'd yeah. come over and they'd want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, but we have not done the like driving around, getting the man on the street mm-hmm. kind of interview stuff. Um, Minerva, we legitimately went down Main Street into stores, talk to store owners, talk to patrons of, right. of like stores as they were coming out, um, asked random people <laughs> on the street if they had ever heard of Minerva Monster and almost every single person said no. Um, and so that, for some reason, that's the only time we really did that. Shannon LeGros is always, when we're on, on the trail of UFO shoots, she always wants to just go up to random people and talk mm-hmm. to them about their UFO experiences. Yeah. One thing about that though, like, I think the reason we haven't done that more just to approach random witnesses or random people on the street mm-hmm. is that um, you don't have a great deal of time yep. on an STM shoot. This is true. To do things like that. So yeah. that's probably the only reason. And also just I'm very socially awkward. Yeah. But if Shannon goes and talks to him, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. See? Yeah. I, then I got to no awkwardly excuse. stand there filming. <laughs> um. Have you seen a, a shift in the way that stories are being recorded in general? I mean, even from a filmmaking perspective, the way that it's being transmitted to an audience, even since you've started. Um, I think it's gotten less uh, dramatic or um, maybe slightly less. Um, I think there might be less of an agenda with it, and that's mostly because there's when STM started, there was all of a sudden a ton of little independent documentaries about cryptids and the paranormal that Mm. started coming out. And a lot of those people, this isn't me tooting our own horn, but a lot of those people were in some respects copying our approach to the subject, which is fine. I'm not saying copying in a bad way, but, but they, they had seen STM. Mm -hmm. They knew what we did. They said I could go do that too. And they did the same sort of thing. And so those films were taking those subjects seriously all of a sudden. As far as television goes, there there have been shows on TV that have approached these subjects in a less like sensationalized way. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we started up, the big shows on TV were fi- Finding Bigfoot mm-hmm. and Mountain Monsters. Right. And that was informing everything else on TV, it seemed like, that was cryptid related. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you've got other sorts of like paranormal entertainment that that do approach things a little differently um i think the problem is though they're trying like it's a, it's not a genuine way when it comes to television it's not genuine in that they're they're not doing it to be they're not trying to make an upfront honest representation of these cases they're mm-hmm. just like they they might see like maybe their algorithm told them that people want a less romanticized version of like the monster tales. Right. And so that's what they're attempting to do. But um, there have been, you know, like uh, there's a sh- there was a show called Unidentified that I talked about the first season, especially, which was like a Tom DeLonge produced UFO show. I really enjoyed the first season of that show. And I felt like that was a very level headed approach to the UFO subject. Um, there have been a couple others. For the most part, television is still ruled by, you know, uh, ridiculously sensationalized versions of monster stories. Yeah. 
Well, so Small Town Monster started with Minerva Monster, which we know and hopefully everybody else knows is an Appalachian cryptid. And then mm -hmm. since then, you've covered other Appalachian stories. Um, do you think that there's something particular about this region of the United States that has allowed STM to develop in the manner that it has? Yeah, I don't know. Someone asked me how many, because we were just in West Virginia over the weekend for an event, and someone asked me how many movies we've made are based in West Virginia. I was like, it's like five, I think. Yeah. And that's saying something, because we've, you know, we've made 18, 19 movies, mm -hmm. and five of those are directly based in West Virginia, then others have ties to West Virginia or play yeah. in it. So, so if you expand that out to Appalachia, it's probably half the catalog. Mm -hmm. Um that are directly tied to the Appalachian range. So I don't know what it is other yeah. than storytelling is a big part of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. um, we've, our movies have directly addressed that fact, especially Mothman legacy is very much about that. Dark sky is about that to an extent. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and then if you're asking about the folkloric or monstrous side of that, some of the most memorable monsters, you know, monster cases in America exist in that region. Right. And a place like West Virginia has some of the, my absolute favorite monsters, you know, probably like four or five of my favorite 20 monsters are directly from West Virginia. So right. you've got the Flatwoods monster and Mothman and Grafton and the mm. Vegetable Man. And yeah. <laughs> like... All these really weird, fun <laughs> stories. Yeah. Um, but then you've got, you know, like the Bell Witch in mm -hmm. in Adams, and mm -hmm. you've got the Chestnut Ridge is Appalachian, and you've got any numerous, yeah, any any number of stories from there as well. So Kecksburg and yeah, all that kind of stuff. I don't know what it is though specifically about that area. Yeah. Well, if even stepping away from monsters for a second, you've traveled enough to see the. Uh, there's a difference between Northern Appalachia and Southern Appalachia. Mm -hmm. um, what has been a, a difference that you've noticed as far as storytelling goes or preservation of stories? Well, Southern Appalachia is more aware of itself. Mm -hmm. Northern Appalachia doesn't even realize they're part of Appalachia. <laughs> it seems like I hope, I hope that doesn't offend <laughs> anyone, but like when, like when we went to Massachusetts and were, it took someone like, not from the area telling me we were in Appalachia to even realize we're in Appalachia. Mm. Cause it's like people there don't mention that they don't seem to notice it. They have other identities. Yeah, they have. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I don't know. I, I just think that in the South there, the Southern Appalachia may, might be doing a little bit more to preserve their culture than the Northern. Like through festivals or. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, but you'll notice that same when it comes to the maybe the folkloric, um, the folkloric side of things, you'll notice just in general the South embraces that far more than the North. Mm -hmm. um, so you get like multiple, numerous, a growing number of Bigfoot festivals yeah. taking place around the South now, mm. whereas in the North that's not as much of a thing, right? You know, um, but. I don't know what that is accounted right. for. Or how that's accounted for. All right. Have you considered the long-term implications of what STM has created when adding to regional folklore? 
no. No. No, I um no, because uh we make movies. Yeah. About uh cryptids and the paranormal. Yeah. And um I'm not downplaying the fact that maybe there is an importance to it. Mm-hmm. But um and I'm also not downplaying the fact that people should be preserving these stories in whatever way they can. Yeah. Um, it's just that at the end of the day, my concern at this point is keeping, uh, keeping us afloat (laughs) and also in telling the stories in a way where it doesn't feel like we're just doing the same thing over and over again. Right. And so that, that part has become the trick in, Mm -hmm. in, as we've created more and more films is that we have to constantly be finding new ways to do it. Right. Um, and I think what we're doing with YouTube right now is really interesting where you've got beyond the trail yeah. which is like it's like a travelogue of some of the most gorgeous places in america mm-hmm. with to to the odd couple of cryptozoology <laughs> alexander pedicott and <laughs> eli watson uh and then you've got something like the bigfoot project which is let's just stay in this one spot right and see what uh, unfolds in that location over you know however long we end up being there and figuring out, but still figuring out like, you know, how to, to tell those stories, mm-hmm. how each episode is going to be a story that doesn't feel boring because you you are in that same place, but finding new chapters of the story to unfold for the audience. And so even on YouTube where that's all storytelling and figuring out how to relay those stories in a fun way. Right. All right. So I know you say that you don't like to tell stories, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to ask you to, but I'll set you up first. All right. right. So we're on a drive Mm -hmm. to Chestnut Ridge. Okay. We've been driving for a while. We've passed a lot of small towns and signs and stuff. And I know that you do this because I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. We passed a sign for some small town somewhere. I'm probably talking about like a restaurant that I No, no. You've told me about that's the home of the whatever monster that I've never heard of before. You see a sign and a memory has come back of some story that you've heard long ago. Mm-hmm. Tell me that story. Does it have to be on the... It doesn't have to be on Chestnut Ridge. I was just trying to okay. think of a place that I know you're going to be going sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is... You know what? I'm... We're on the way to... Uh... We're on Route 66. <laughs> <laughs> on the way to Adams. I don't know. Go across Ohio. Any? We're on the road somewhere. I mean, Big Head is the one that I love. All right. Tell and me that story. There, well, there's... T- I, I think Stories. I there's two... Yeah, there's, as long as we're driving. Okay, so let's say we're on Route 30. We're <laughs> okay. on the Lincoln Highway. All right. And um, Just left Minerva. You have. Yes. Yeah. All uh, right. 1978, okay. same year as the Minerva Monster Story, mm-hmm. which was also a year for unu- strange and unusual events just in Ohio mm-hmm. in general. There's a lot of weird crap that happened here yeah. that year. So you had Minerva uh, going off in August, but mm-hmm. in July, June and July... You had a family somewhere outside of Mansfield near Ashland, Ohio. Okay. They lived by a railroad track. Mm-hmm. Um, they encountered a uh, creature, a hairy humanoid creature with a bulbous head. Mm. Uh, the young boy, the young boy of the family and then his friend encountered this thing multiple times. Um, and they told their dad. Their dad also saw it. Um, 
And over the course of this summer, they had multiple encounters with this thing. Local media gets a hold of it and dubbed it Big Head. (laughs) Uh, The police came out and investigated it. It's a lot like Minerva. Yeah. Like like it's just this sort of unfolding, slowly unfolding series of sightings of this creature. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is one that has always stood out to me as like uh, this little... This little piece of Ohio Bigfoot history that is that is going to be forgotten. It's just going to disappear. The unfortunate thing about that is we were going to make a movie about that at one point, right after Minerva. Mm-hmm. And um, but it tur- turns out um, one of the one of the boys is dead. Mm. The son was in a car accident and is um, severely like mentally handicapped. From what I've heard, I actually spoke to his mom, mm-hmm. and the dad is dead. So there's almost no one left to talk about the case. Um, but that was one that I really loved and, and would 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 gladly talk about any time I drove through there. And I actually tried to find their house once and like drove drove around trying to find the railroad tracks and all that stuff. Yeah. The other one that I love, and I think I've maybe mentioned it to you while we were driving uh, on, on like 71 or something like mm-hmm. that, was uh, the Charles Mill Lake Monster. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, which was this these kids that saw a... a a frog-like amphibious creature come out of a lake that had no arms. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the creature had no arms, and it left giant webbed footprints on the banks of uh, Charles Mill Lake. And the story was like a big deal uh, at the time. This was in the 60s, I want to say, 50s, 60s, something like that. It was covered by local media. And, and Is this the one where they had pictures of the mm-hmm. footprint? Yeah. So you, you talked about this on Monstropolis, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. And Charles Mill Lake is also where the coin uh, helicopter UFO incident that Mark talked about took yeah. place. Um, and that, that's a great story, too, where a, a military helicopter had a run-in with a UFO over Charles Mill Lake. And basically yeah. a dogfight ensued <laughs> that went on for like three or four minutes. Yeah. And the coolest thing about that is I've met witnesses to that event. Like there were there were people on the ground that saw it. They were having a party, a school party, and they actually saw the UFO <laughs> go overhead, dog fighting with the helicopter. So, yeah, hey man. those are the those. That's my story. Good. Those are my stories. You did a great job. Yeah, great. Yeah, awesome. Can't get enough. I love it. Yep. Uh, all right, Seth. So where can we find you? Oh, right here on this very YouTube channel. Uh, you can watch me and Heather look for Bigfoot in the Bigfoot Project out oh, yeah. uh, out in Minerva, um, where I fittingly had my own Bigfoot sighting finally. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, smalltownmonsters.com. Yeah. Also, you guys should join the squad, become a channel member on YouTube. Yes, channel members on YouTube get yeah. to watch things. Yeah, early, actually, ad free. Right, the Bigfoot project Bigfoot will be out. Project comes out this Thursday, week. Yeah, because yeah. this will be out Wednesday. So yeah, some really cool tomorrow. Sounds. And then you see me leap from a <laughs> moving ATV going about twenty miles an hour. Yeah, because I saw a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um. So if there's anybody that you want me to talk to or any suggestions, anything like that, you can email me at heather at smalltownmonsters.com or leave a comment below. And thank you. Until next time. Thank you.